Welcome to this episode of Portraits of Music. I'm Ross Sievertson. And I'm Clay Couturio, music director and conductor of the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. In this episode of Portraits of Music, Maestro Couturio and I talk about the program for the RSO opening night concert and chat with feature soloist and RSO concertmaster, Elizabeth Atkins. So Maestro, why don't you tell us a little bit about the opening night concert on October 3rd? Sure. I'm really, really excited about this concert. It's an all Beethoven program, and it just happens to be the 250th anniversary of Beethoven's birth. He was born in 1770, and uh, we have two wonderful works uh, that he produced, the Symphony Number no. 8 and the Violin Concerto. It's the only violin concerto he ever wrote. Um, Beethoven is one of the most important composers, of course famous, but one of the most important composers for the symphony and the symphony orchestra. And I'm separating those two things. The symphony as in a musical work itself. It's a, usually a four-movement work. And the symphony orchestra are the actual players. So he was important to both of these. And uh, for the first one, the symphony... He, uh, he wrote nine symphonies, and each are very different. And as it progresses from number one to number nine, he changes things. And this is what really changed the symphony and music in general. This is a pivotal point in symphonic music. And I'll give you just a few brief examples before I go into some of the, uh, the two pieces that we're going to perform. Um, the first two symphonies of Beethoven are really known as, Beethoven's broken up into three periods, an early period, a middle period, and a late period. And the first two symphonies are of the first early period. And it's more of what the symphony would have been prior to Beethoven, what's called the classical symphony. And this would have been around what time period? Uh, this was before Beethoven was born, so before 1770. Um, so that, at that time, the symphony was usually in three movements, a fast movement, a slow movement, and a fast movement. Then, this was also before Beethoven, there was a fourth movement put in, but it was put in the third spot, and it's called a minuet, minuet and trio. So both of Beethoven's first symphonies are in that tradition, more like Haydn, Joseph Haydn, who was actually uh, Beethoven's teacher. He wanted to study with Mozart, but Mozart died young, so he didn't get a chance to. Haydn is really, (laughs) I wouldn't say the next best, I'd say just as good as teacher or better. Um, So, like I said, uh, by Beethoven's time, it was four movements, and Beethoven thought that wasn't enough, so he started to do things. It was the same size orchestra, but that third movement I was talking about, the minuet and trio, he started making it go faster and faster. A minuet's in three, a slower three. One, two, three, one. And he made it go faster. One, two, three, one, two, three, Mm -hmm. almost like in a one pulse, one. Sure. One. And that became what's called the scherzo. Uh, it's very playful, very fast. And uh, Beethoven was responsible for that. He did that in his symphonies. But what's interesting is it not, is not just the symphonies. Whatever output he was working on, so different types of output, the piano sonatas, the cello sonatas, the violin sonatas, the string quartets, or the symphony. He was doing all these things in all these different genres. By the time we get to the third symphony, it, the Eroica, that has a nickname, that the symphony goes from, let's say, 25 to 26 minutes to 40-something minutes, long, much longer. Well, why is it longer? Well, the first movement, which we said was a fast movement, has uh, th- three main sections. It was called an exposition, 
a development, and a recapitulation. Exposition was uh, where the composer just gives you all the themes you're going to hear throughout this movement. Development is he takes those themes from the exposition and he develops them. He, 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 they change it just here and there. They, they play with it, add little things, subtract little things. And the recapitulation is just like the exposition. It comes back, it's, it, here it is again, once mm-hmm. again. Uh, but it's different in that it stays in the same key throughout. The exposition would change keys because it gets monotonous if you just stay in the same key the right. whole time. But once you get back to the recapitulation, it's home base. We know we're home for the duration. Well, Beethoven, by his third symphony, uh, or, or typically before those three sections, the, the, the exposition was longer. The development was really short. Mozart, even when he developed, didn't do much with it. Just a few little developments here, there, and then right back to the recapitulation. Well, Beethoven that said, no, I'm going to play with this a little bit longer. I'm going to see what I can do. And he, he developed a lot more in the de- development section. In fact, he made it so big that it was equal to the exposition. So it's really three equal sections where they weren't equal before. And in fact, he put after the recapitulations what's called a coda, a little segment at the end. And he made that another development. So you have four equal sections. So that alone shows you how he expanded and made the symphony really big and longer. You get to the fourth symphony and he he fools everybody. He thought you thought, oh, it's getting longer, bigger. He reverts back to what the first and second were, even more so as far as uh, uh, the, the structure. He's, he also develops a little bit more, but in a shorter amount of time. So what you think is reverting back is actually going forward motion and, and progression of the symphony. It's very interesting. Then uh, symphonies five and six in the fifth symphony, which is one of the most famous uh, pieces in all of music, he starts to connect pieces or movements uh, together without stopping. And it's called ataka. You go directly from this movement into this movement. And he does that in from the third movement into the fourth movement of the fifth symphony. In the sixth symphony, he adds another movement. So there are actually five movements instead of four, three of which are ataka. And this was what's called programmatic. There are uh, names to each of the movements. This is nicknamed the Pastoral Symphony. Yes. And each movement has a name. The yes. second movement is uh, the brook, by the brook. And um, uh, where he starts to add instrumentation. In the Fifth Symphony, he adds piccolo, contrabassoon, trombones. These were not used in the symphony before. So when I said earlier he's progressing the symphony, the piece of music, and the symphony orchestra, he's adding to the orchestra, which is a big deal. Uh, he also has two trombones in the, the sixth symphony. The seventh symphony, which is a large work as well, uh, is very rhythmic. He, he deals with rhythm. Of course, he deals, I say that in general sense, he deals with rhythm in all those symphonies, but primarily it's the rhythmic drive in that piece that is uh, a monumental. Uh, and then we get to the eighth symphony, which was... Uh, premiered along with uh, around the same time as the Seventh Symphony. And just like I said with the Fourth Symphony, he he almost goes backwards. He goes to a, a, a smaller structure as far as the, the Eighth Symphony is concerned. But he, so it sounds a little musically simpler, but he starts to impart some new ideas. And I'll get to, to that in just a minute. 
Then he ends with the Ninth Symphony, of course, and that's monumental because he adds chorus and soloists, and uh, it's it's quite long. He, uh, where I said the typical symphony would be a fast movement, a slow movement, the minuet, and the fast movement, he switches the order. The second movement is actually the scherzo movement now, and the slow movement's the third movement. This affected composers way after him, like Mahler and uh, Shostakovich, many, many different composers. So, uh, like I said, he, he is just, the symphony orchestra and the symphony in general would not be the same without Beethoven. And when you talk about why it's so important, is it because of the structure, how that affects the symphony? Because it allowed composers, composers work within structure and it was, it was all, you do it this way. And the greatness, the great composers were able to move beyond that structure, break the rules. In, in in other words, but in a way that was artistically so satisfying that it became part of the rules. I see. And then that allowed composers later to say, the great Beethoven did this. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try this as well. In fact, I'll give you uh, another example. The There are different tempo markings at the beginning of, of uh, works, of each movement of these uh, symphonies. And... Um, one tempo marking is called Andantino. It's based on the word Andante, mm-hmm. which is a tempo marking. Mm-hmm. And prior to Beethoven, composers would use the word Andantino as a little bit slower than the Andante tempo. But Beethoven started to incorporate it and use it in a different way. He started to make it faster than the marked Andante. And by the end of Beethoven's life, composers started seeing this, and he actually changed the tempo marking. Now Andantino post-Beethoven is a little faster than Andante. I see. So that's just one little tiny example. The ones I mentioned about structure within the symphonies, those are bigger deals. That's a right. big, big to-do. Very good. So going back to uh, our program, we open the concert with symphony number eight, and it's in F major. And um, like I said, it was it was a kind of a throwback to earlier symphonies, of like classical structured but he starts to do new things with it. Uh, he wrote this piece in 1812. He was born in, in uh, 1770, died in 1827. So 1812, this is closer to the third, the final period of, of his life. Uh, many people uh, who've seen the movie uh, Immortal Beloved, mm-hmm. uh, it was uh, someone that he loved very much. And it's, it, there's controversy of, as to who that might be. A lot of people uh, think it was a patron a certain patron, Antoine uh, Brentano. But uh, this was, he wrote a diary at that time and it talked about Immortal Beloved. And this was one of the pieces written during that same time that he talked about this this person. There was a lot of turmoil. He was going through his life at the time. He uh, he had a, a nephew that was very close to him and there was some trouble there. And the, his housekeeper, I don't know, to, you know, all types of problems. And he started to compose his this symphony. He called it the Little Symphony Symphony in F, to get away from all this turmoil in his in his life. Uh, and it was premiered with the Seventh Symphony, which I said was a much bigger uh, symphony as far as uh, size, and uh, a couple other pieces of a vocal trio and a piece called Wellington's Victory, had to do with uh, the end of of a war, and. 
this premiere had a big orchestra. It's actually bigger than what we're going to have uh, on our opening night. There were about 70 strings alone on this wow. on this stage during the premiere performance. We won't have nearly that that number, but really the main reason is uh, when our audience comes to see the, the symphony that night, we're going to be spread out a little bit more on the stage than the audience is used to seeing. Usually our string players are up the front of the group and they're closer together, they're about three feet apart and they all share a stand. Well, with CDC rules and everything, social distancing, we're required to be six feet apart at least uh, for uh, for that purpose. And we're gonna adhere to those rules. Well, to do that, we have to be spaced out more on the stage. So we're gonna use every bit of that stage that we can. Now that poses different issues. The orchestra's not used to playing that way. Uh, and uh, when we have our first rehearsal, we're gonna, we'll, we'll deal with that at that time and how to play together in this new new way. But it was important for me and for the musicians and, and to, to play. Performers love to perform and sure. they're gonna do it under whatever circumstances and we're gonna make it work. Uh, our, our musicians are so excited to, to play these pieces for our opening concert. And we're excited to have the orchestra back and performing for an audience. Do you have a sense of how that's going to affect the acoustics? Our, our musicians are good enough that it shouldn't affect anything. The point is, whatever we have to do on stage to changes that we have to make, the results sound in the audience. Things happen on stage that the audience, I shouldn't even say this, but I'll give you a... a this is an inside conversation. Certain part. things happen. It's on live performance on stage that you never hear out in the audience. And some things that are good, that they're supposed to happen. Sure. And a few things that may not, you know, supposed to be there, but it doesn't make it out into the audience. Sure. So that that's just part of live performance. But we will spend our rehearsals doing what we normally do, but in addition to that, figuring out how to play together in this new format. And we're not going to be the only ones. Symphony orchestras that play you know, worldwide are, are, are figuring this out. Sure. Back to the Eighth Symphony, just a little bit about each each movement. The uh, first movement, uh, like I said, each movement has a tempo marking. This one's called Allegro Vivace e Conbrio. So it's fast and it's lively uh, with a little bit of fire to it that, that way. And that's how it opens. It opens with a fast three tempo. <laughs> It's very enthusiastic, played by the, the entire orchestra. Um, but what's interesting is, you know, I had said he starts to put new things in, into uh, the symphony, even though it seems like it's like an older symphony. He starts to add all these musical jokes, uh, things that would have seemed at the time just absurd. The audience would have had their mouth wide open, like, what is he thinking? He's gone crazy. And maybe he did. I don't know. But... But uh, just the way he would end phrases or, or certain non-traditional key progressions. Uh, for example, you're only supposed to go from the tonic key to the dominant or subdominant. Right. Well, he'd go all over the place. He'd just do, in other words, we're in F major. So F, A, C makes right. an F major chord. Right. Right. Well, he throws C sharps in there. It's a half step higher than the C. Kind of thumbing your nose at that at tradition at the rules at the rules i mean bl this is blatant and he would do so many jokes like this that uh conductors after him much af later after him 
and uh, would try to change it back, thinking, no, this is this could not be. This is not what he meant. And they would change things. And famous conductors, Gustav Mahler, who was well-known as a composer, but was a famous conductor. He conducted the New York Philharmonic at one time, made changes to Beethoven that, that was wrong. <laughs> right. But that was also part of the era of those conductors. They would, they would do that as well. Uh, so that's the first movement. The second movement is famous for um, a rhythmic pulse. There's at the beginning just a pulse. Yup, pop, 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 pop. And that has to do with uh, one of Beethoven's friends at the time uh, made a machine. It's the precursor to the metronome. And so he had that pulse in there as a metronome going. And then the, the little mode is da, 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 ba, 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 is going along with the metronome, his, his, his theme. One of the things I had mentioned was the second movement is usually a slower movement. Mm -hmm. Well, in this case, it is slower as compared to the first and the third and the last, but it's really not that slow. It's actually marked allegretto scherzando. So allegretto is a little slower than allegro, which does mean fast, and scherzando, uh, very playful. Uh, so that that movement is really famous for that metronomic feel to it, mm -hmm. but done with uh, vibrance and musicality. Then for the third movement, uh, he reverts back to the actual minuet. I had said that Beethoven changed to the scherzo. Well, he, he changes it up again. People were expecting scherzo, so he changes back to the slower minuet. Uh, and it sounds like a, it's a very rustic, reminiscent of outdoors Vienna. Mm -hmm. uh, it has the minuet trio format, which means start with the minuet, go into the trio, and back to the minuet. And he had it's a heavier orchestration, and he adds all these sforzandos, these heavy accents uh, that are l unusual for that type of uh, movement. Uh, it's also famous for a big clarinet solo in the in the trio. And we have a wonderful principal clarinetist who uh, will do just beautiful on this. It has a high G at the very end. And it's, he'll, he'll guaranteed to hit it every time. Uh, and then the last movement, which the tempo marking Allegro Vivace, is a, what's called a rondo structure. Rondo means you have an A theme, then a B theme, then the A theme comes back, then you have a C theme, which is different from either A or B, and then the A comes back, then the B, and then the A. That's the typical rondo structure. Right. And sometimes there are little what we call episodes. They're not, it's not an entire theme. It's just, it's four or five bars of kind of like a little hiccup. Right. Uh, just to break it up. And he puts some of those in this uh, rondo as well. I mentioned a C sharp in the first movement. He brings it back in this last movement again and again and then again. And it, it's, it's just blatant that it's there. And... Uh, he works around it, of course, because he's Beethoven. He knows how to how to do that. But it, it's it's almost over, almost to the point of overdone. Um, this movement also is the first where the timpani is tuned in octaves, and uh, he does that again later with the Ninth Symphony. So this is a technique that had not been done before at all. Uh, an octave, of course, being right. eight notes difference, right? And uh, so that adds a different sound that backs up the entire orchestra. So it's a wonderful work. Uh, it has special meaning to me because 
when I was a student almost 30 years ago is one of the first pieces I ever got to conduct. So I, I l love when I get to come back and do it each time. It's my pleasure to introduce the concertmaster of the Richardson Symphony Orchestra, Elizabeth Atkins. This is her second year as concertmaster. Welcome, Elizabeth. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Great. Uh, I know, of course, a lot about you, Elizabeth, but our, some of our audience may not know as much. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background? You come from a very musical family and tell us a little bit about where all you've performed. Wonderful. I'm a native Texan, um, and I grew up in Denton. Both my parents were uh, college professors at UNT, and uh, I actually played with the Fort Worth Youth Orchestra and uh, a lot of things around in the area and went to UNT myself for undergraduate and then left and studied at Yale University and um, played some in New York City and then was lucky enough to get the job of associate concertmaster at the Kennedy Center for the National Symphony Orchestra. Mm -hmm. And then I played there for 31 years. And uh, That's a career invited. in itself, isn't it? <laughs> that was a career in itself. And uh, then six years ago, I was invited by uh, TCU to come back to Fort Worth and uh, be the violin professor at TCU. And uh, I've been there for the last six years and then now uh, playing with the Richardson Symphony for the uh, last two as well. That's great. I learned something about you. I didn't know you played in Fort Worth Youth Orchestra. I did too, years later, but I did as well. <laughs> yep. So I, I've already talked about uh, the Beethoven Symphony Number no. 8. Let's talk about the piece that's going to feature you, the, the Violin Concerto of Beethoven. Uh, what is it about this piece that's, that's special to you? This is one of the classic legendary violin concertos. Um, for many musicians, it's their favorite one of the violin concertos. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of an expansive work, and it takes a lot of control from the soloist and from the orchestra, but it is uh, just classically beautiful. And it, uh, it, it's rather difficult for everyone, oh, but yes. uh, it, it uh, just has such a soaring beauty that I, I think it has appealed to people always. And uh, the last movement is lots of fun. The rondo is a, is a wonderful melody and uh, may be familiar to some of your listeners, even if they don't think they know the Beethoven Violin Concerto. Sure. You know, I always think uh, when he only writes one of something, it's it's pretty big. I mean, he wrote five piano concertos and 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 so forth. But this is the only violin concerto, uh, and yes. I, I think that's that makes it special. Um, and it's got a fantastic set of cadenzas. Um, that uh, the cadenzas sometimes were um, improvised by the composer by the uh, performer at the time. Um, but with these pieces, they are so amazingly written that they are, it's it's something that you don't feel like you really want to take on as an improvisation to uh, try to put frills on Beethoven. So a lot mm -hmm. of people perform uh, several of standard concerto uh, cadenzas and uh, the ones that I like, I really, really like, and they are by Chrysler. That's great. That's great. Um, I was, of course, reading for background on this um, before, while studying the concerto again, and the concertmaster of the orchestra that premiered it uh, 
had to actually sight read some of what Beethoven wrote. He didn't even, Beethoven was so late in getting music to him that, <laughs> yes. that he, he had it on the stand during the concert. You, you have to be a fine performer to do that, I think. I think you certainly do. And you have to pick and choose what you attempt to do at sight there, I think. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of a nightmare scenario, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's called live performance, I guess. Uh, you know, and, and speaking of, uh, of that concert, uh, it was, done in different ways we perform of course and you will, will perform the three movements all in in its entirety one right after the other but during beethoven's yes. time they would perform that movement the first movement of the violin concerto and then do something else and then do something else and then maybe the second half of the program do the second and third movement so i just it's interesting how things progress over time they really do and uh, if Am I remembering correctly that the Eighth Symphony was performed on the same concert as the Seventh Symphony, or it was another one of those kind of uh, interesting hodgepodge programs the, that had maybe an aria and you know something else happening um, around the presentation of these incredibly classic works? So you know, with our perspective, we feel like everyone should have gone into a holy marble temple to hear these pieces. And, uh, you know, it, it was not like that. It wasn't like that at all. In, in fact, I'm glad you said the eighth was played with the seventh. I mentioned that earlier in the program. So our audience is going to just know how smart you are, are already. So. Oh, well, good. There you go. <laughs> but speaking of how we, we treat these things as holy, on that same program, the, the uh, concert master that played the, the concerto, he played a piece of his own. It was a fantasy of his own. And it was a composition oh that he played all on one string with the violin being held upside down. And I'm not oh, even kidding. It was like, he's like oh, a vaudeville my. performer. So the performances <laughs> were different at that time. There's no question. <laughs> yeah, they, they didn't know they were making musical history. And, and <laughs> you know, we look back and presume it's going to be just this incredible, you know, hushed, hushed presentation of this immortal work. That's and right. uh, it doesn't always work. <laughs> So, uh, you know, it's three movements. There's, uh, a, if, if I had to just in general say a, a little bit faster movement, a slower movement and a faster movement uh, of the three movements, do you, I mean, I know you love it all, but do you have anything, one of the movements in particular that really strikes you more or do you have a favorite part of the concerto? I, I think that the, uh, the audience will certainly enjoy the the last movement because it's a really lively rondo yes. and uh, and and has a lot of dance style to it. I personally enjoy the slow movement uh, particularly Me too. because it is just a serene, incredibly. I don't know. It it's it seems so deep, yet it's just very uh, without any kind of scenes to it. There's, it's a conversation between the violin and the orchestra, but again, it seems to just have this immortal quality to it that um, uh, the, the serenity and, and the calm and the peace of it is, uh, I think, very appealing and uh, nicely framed, of course, with the faster outer movement. I agree with you. After hearing this massive first movement, it's the slow movement. It's kind of the concerto still point. I mean, it it, yes. it has uh, uh, strings are, are muted, has, and and then the motion of the harmonies is quite minimal, like you were saying in a way. Um, mm -hmm. And then the uh, seven the the variations are all done in their own way, and it has a simplicity to it. And uh, what I also like about it is the the 
the touching ornament, ornamentation at the end that kind of brings you into the last movement. I think that's yes. wonderful. It is wonderful. And I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, actually, something you may not know, I'm not going to tell you which anniversary, but this is <laughs> one year past my anniversary debut with the Richardson Symphony. Is At the that... age of 11, I played a Bach, the Bach E major concerto with the Richardson Symphony. Um, uh, Chris Zeros was the conductor at wow. that point. And uh, I can't quite remember. I think I had sort of won an informal concerto competition or something like that. But uh, so I actually was exposed to Richardson very early in my career. Well, this is like full circle then, isn't it? This it's is full great. circle. <laughs> and in a Beethoven year on top of it. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, we look. I look forward to it personally. I know the orchestra does, and they'll 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 play great for you. And when we start that piece, we start the Beethoven Concerto, which, by the way, for our audience, starts with five soft beats on the timpani. I mean, that's unheard oh, of before. Yes. No, no one, no one unusual. Ever, very unusual. And you think, okay, maybe that's just an introduction. That one bar. No. He brings it back after there's a beautiful little melody played by the winds. And then the violins come in with that little sharp five notes, bop, 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 bop. You know, it's just, so it's meant to be there. It's just, you, you think, is this guy crazy or, or what's going on? But, but it all makes sense. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> well, and uh, the, uh, your listeners are probably familiar with the first movement of the Beethoven Fifth Concerto, or sorry, Fifth Symphony where he uses the four-note motive that that everyone knows. It's similar to that in that it kind of organizes the whole piece. And you wouldn't know it to listen to from the outside because the the sheen and the shell of the piece is, is so unflawed. But inside, when we do our analysis as musicians and look at how he put everything together, it's a constant revelation. Because these four notes that the timpani gave are throughout. They are everywhere. And uh, it's really interesting to to know those things are there and to feel the organization. Yet then it has this just beautifully burnished um, outside to it. Uh, really marble-like, you know, very, very, very cool and, and deceptively simple, but just beautiful. Well, and that's the thing about great music like this is there's even for performers that play it again and again you go back to these works you're constantly finding new things about about the piece that you never thought of before never heard and you hear in different ways and it's it's what makes this music just monumental structure really it does and i have to say as a performer that's one of the most important things also is always to be open to that development in your vision of a piece and one of the best ways to do that is to play it with different groups, to play it with a different conductor, to have different people behind you. You may hear something in a horn solo that you hadn't heard before that makes you think something different about the piece. So even for soloists that play uh, some of this repertoire all the time and have played you know dozens and dozens of times, there still is a, a magical thing that happens with live music which, of course, is why it's so important that we keep it <laughs> happening because, uh, you know, it's wonderful to have recordings. And I know they have really sustained people over these last few weeks. But uh, to hear 
the atmosphere and something being created in front of your eyes and someone from 250 years ago speaking through our music. And, you know, Beethoven is mute if we aren't, if we are not playing his music and we don't hear his voice until we pick our instruments up and begin. That's right. And, and there's a reason we keep playing it, all these great works, and it, it deserves to be played. That's very sure. well said. Absolutely. Very well said. Well, Elizabeth, the orchestra and I very much look forward to working with you on this, and uh, um, we'll have a great concert on October 3rd. I'm looking forward to it, Clay. Good Thank to talk you so to you. Much. Uh-huh. We'd like to let our patrons know that the RSO will continue with our planned 2020-2021 concert season. The safety of our audience, musicians, and staff is most important, so we will follow all social distancing protocols which are outlined on our website. We would like to thank our sponsors of today's podcast, Humanities Texas and Frostbank Richardson. I want to remind everyone that tickets are available at the Eisman Center Ticket Office and on their website at eismancenter.com. Maestro, thank you. It's always great to chat with you. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to Portraits and Music with Maestro Clay Catorio. I'm your producer and co-host, Ross Sievertson. Remember, if you haven't done so already, hit that subscribe button so you can get new episodes downloaded to you automatically. Reviews and ratings are always appreciated, and it helps us to provide you with more great inside conversations from the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. Until next time.